God's Word to James. It'll be our first day in a new book. I wonder how many of you have uh, read a book by an author that has been transformed by the message that he's actually writing about. Um, you may or may not believe the message that he's actually writing about, but you're convinced at the way he holds that message and the way it's transformed his life, that if it be true, then the only proper response would be the same response as the one that wrote it. Oh, this writer um, is such a writer as that. He's been around the message. He's seen others believe the message. And he's also seen that their response is not appropriate to the message. So James is one who knows that the message of the gospel should transform. And in fact, it finally does. And behold, he was gripped by the truth that he writes about, radically and completely changed. Uh, his response uh, shaped his life. He was no longer the same. This writer had, uh, had, had lived with his half-brother, Jesus, who, uh, and he became convinced that Jesus was the creator of all things, the redeemer the king of kings. And James is no longer just a bystander. He's no longer just an onlooker. He's no longer just a roommate of his half-brother Jesus, but he's now a follower of Christ. Before we meet James and are introduced to his message, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the word that's before us today. As we start into a new book, Lord, I pray that as we introduce it, that the truths and the nuggets that we get today would help shape the way we read it, the way we hold it to be true, and the way we respond to it. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So our text today is simply one verse, James 1.1. says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So who is James? Uh, as mentioned in the introduction, James is the half-brother of Jesus, they shared a mother, they shared Mary, and uh, we see in Mark 8, 3, it says this, Is not this carpenter the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So we know that Jesus had at least seven siblings. He had brothers, or six siblings at least, brothers and sisters that grew up with him. And we also know that he wasn't only a half-brother, but he also didn't believe the gospel story. He didn't believe that Jesus, his half-brother, was who he says he was, at least initially. He didn't believe it. In John 7, 5, it says this, For not even his brothers, not even Jesus' brothers, believed in him. So he was not a believer uh, as he was growing up. But after the resurrection, after the power of the resurrection, and after Jesus was raised again and before he ascended, after he came back, 1 Corinthians, and Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. So James came to believe that Jesus was who he says he was. And as he came to believe, 
that he became a ruler and a, a leader of the church. In fact, in Acts, we know that he was the main guy that was over all the council of Jerusalem. So he uh, became a leader in, uh, in, in the gospel and in the churches and in, in growing the churches. So for years, James had, had shared a room with Jesus, shared a house with Jesus, shared playmates with Jesus, their sisters and their brothers. Uh, he saw Jesus interact with his family. He would have seen Jesus interact with his extended family and cousins. Uh, he would have seen Jesus interact with his parents. Uh, he was right there, and I, I guess we could say he would see Jesus in Jesus' most vulnerable, compromised position, and he never saw him sin. Now, he didn't believe in him at that time, but when he came to believe, uh, he was transformed and he was all in. A first century historian says this about James, and I quote, uh, James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's knees. You might have heard James had camel's knees. And uh, this historian says it's because he prayed earnestly and continually in the temple for the people. Because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people, he became known as James the Just or James the Righteous. Uh, he was all in when he came. Now, Jesus was also martyred. This same historian says this. The scribes and the Pharisees placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple, and then they threw him down, and they began to stone him because he had not been killed by the fall. And one of them, who was a fuller, and a fuller is one who washes clothes and cleans clothes, uh, he took the club with which he beat out clothes, and he struck the just man on the head. James really believed the message. He was transformed by it. He had been around it. He had seen others believe it. He saw others' inappropriate response. Um, and then he had himself had an appropriate response. So how does James identify himself? Does he say, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. I'm James, the leader of the church. I'm James, the, the leader of the Jerusalem council. No, he says this. In verse 1, I'm James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we probably could just preach that. And we think, how do we identify ourselves? Do we identify ourselves by the things that we accomplish or do? Or, uh, or do we identify ourselves as a servant of the living God? That's what James did. He identified himself as the servant of God. We've briefly been introduced to James, very briefly. There's a lot in Scripture, in Galatians, and the Gospels, and the book of Acts. We could spend a whole day looking at this James. There's some authors, there's not much uh, written about them. There's a lot written about James. But for now, that's where we'll go. We've been introduced to him. Now, who is he writing to? That's the author. Who is he writing to? Well, that's the second half of verse 1. And it says that he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And uh, so the Jewish people uh, were dispersed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The Assyrians came and they took them away and broke them up, the ten tribes in the north. And the two tribes that remained in the south in 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came and they took them captive and they scattered them around. Now when the uh, people of God came back together in Jerusalem and they rebuilt all the things, the temple, and they became a people group again, they were again uh, scattered. And they were scattered, it says in, in Acts, uh, basically when Stephen was stoned, they were spread abroad to Judea and Samaria and to other places in Mesopotamia. 
And so they were scattered about. Now, um, Jesus is, I mean, James is writing to brothers, the brothers. So they're fellow Jews, but they're probably more than fellow Jews. They're fellow believers in Christ. We know that. Uh, I don't have this on the overheads, but you might want to jot this down if you're taking notes. Uh, he, he says that they, the people he was writing to, have received the good gift, and then he tells what that good gift is. They've received uh, the gift of the Word of God, bringing them forth uh, and saving and redeeming them. In chapter 2, verse uh, 7, he says they've been called, they've all been called by the same name, that name of Christ. They are Christians. And in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he says that we, he and the recipients of his letter, we're sojourners here, and we long and we wait for a Savior to come and return again. So James is writing to fellow Christians who've been displaced by the scattering and by the persecution. And, uh, they've, they've been scattered, not only physically scattered, but they were lonely and frustrated and without a homeland. They were scattered in all kinds of ways. I want to take just a minute to let you know that uh, when Greg started putting the last uh, slide up, it says, when we come in and we're gathered to worship, and then the last slide that you'll see today, it says that we're scattered to serve. Well, this is where this is coming from. The, the people, God's people were scattered, and because they were scattered, the gospel went forth everywhere. And so when you and I are scattered from this gathered place, we go into all kinds of places. We go into schools, classrooms, we go into uh, workplaces, and we, we go into all kinds of places and we take the gospel there. So we're scattered to serve. And so the scattering, although it was a persecution for those who were scattered, it was uh, glorious for the gospel going forth around the nations. So the, the letter of James was what's considered as a circular letter, means that, meaning that it's kind of for the general population of the Jews and the Christians. And uh, so it was to be read by all the different churches and all the different people groups. They would have read it. Uh, read by, by all. So James had seen all these people that said they believed the gospel and they weren't really changed. And at that point, he wasn't really changed either. But when he was changed, uh, it was all in. C.S. Lewis, and many of you know this, he used to uh, say this. He's, he said that Jesus is either, uh, does anybody know it? He's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's the Lord. Like he's, he's a lunatic, he's a crazy man because he says he's God, or he's a liar, he's bad, or he's God himself. And C.S. Lewis would say that if he's the Lord, there's only one appropriate response, and that's for us to be all in. And that's what James is saying, and all the book of James is saying that. He's saying, James is saying that the gospel can't just be a part of you, the gospel has to infiltrate all of you. It can't just be a part, it has to be the, be the all. Now, um, that's very consistent with what we read in Paul. Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. He says, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice or a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what the will of God is, what is good and what is well-pleasing and what is perfect. What does Paul say? He says that if Jesus is Lord, the only reasonable response to that is what? That we 
give our whole lives as a living sacrifice to him. So that's the only appropriate response, and that's what James is battling, any inappropriate responses to the gospel that doesn't fully mature, um, move people to be all in. So the recipients of this letter, they had heard the message. Many of them had believed the message, uh, but that message hadn't brought them to a full maturity. It hadn't changed them. It might have changed them a little bit. They might have followed Christ a little bit here and then lived for self a little bit there and followed Christ a little bit in this area, but not followed Christ in this area. Do you guys ever feel that way? You follow Christ one moment in one thing and turn and start living for yourselves in another thing, back and forth and back and forth. Well, James says that that's a double-minded man. And so, uh, at the best, the people that were hearing the gospel, they were conflicted by following Christ a little and having him in the center and then turning and going their own way. Well, if you remember our confession, it says this about the double-minded man, and it's kind of a scary thing. It says, don't let the double-minded man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Because what? Because he's double-minded. So, um, now we are ready basically almost to hear and consider what he wrote. We, James is the writer, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we, we heard how the gospel affected him. We've seen the recipients, they're believers, but some of them are really struggling to be uh, really all in and focused and not double-minded on the things of the Lord. Um, and now we're about, to, uh, about ready to receive his message, talk about what he's writing about. But before you do that, there's, there's one more thing to consider when we talk about the book of James. Maybe James overshot. Maybe he went a little bit overboard by saying, hey, we got to work. You know, maybe he's saying too much that salvation is of works. Is he really saying that? Maybe he overshot uh, those things. Now, James 2.18 says this, but someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. And then James 2.24 you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So perhaps uh, if you've read James, if you know Paul's teaching about faith, perhaps the biggest doctrinal issues in the book of James is that people think that James is saying something totally different than Paul says about faith and about works and how they go together. Uh, it, it appears on the surface, if you read uh, Romans 1 um, and, through, and th Romans 3 as well, James, Paul says we're uh, justified, we're made right with God on the basis of what? Faith alone, not any works. Well, James, we just read, says something that seems on the surface very different. He says we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, there was a man in history named Luther, Martin Luther, and uh, you guys know him. He was uh, converted um, in 1510, and uh, he, he was converted by uh, going up a set of stairs. And he was told by the monks that you need to go up this set of stairs, one stair after another stair, and, and you need to pause at every stair on your knees, by the way. Got to get that in there. Uh, you need to recite the Lord's Prayer, and when you get to the top, the Lord will accept you. Well, Martin Luther did that. He went up the whole flight of stairs. When he got to the very top, he said, how do I know that God, God accepts me? I don't feel any closer to the Lord. 
And then a, a little bit later, he read in Romans that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith alone. And he was converted. Because he was converted, and that was such a big thing for him, that man is not saved and redeemed by works, he read James wrongly. But he read the book of James, and he said, this doesn't belong in the Bible. As a matter of fact, he called it an apostle, or an epistle, sorry, of straw. Not worth having in our Bible. And he didn't count it to be God's word. So should we skip it? Now, I think that as we go along, we'll see that uh, James is not in any kind of conflict with Paul or with Peter or with John or with Jesus. Uh, along with Jesus, Paul and James and Peter uh, and John all will teach the same truths. They will strongly warn against a faith that doesn't work. They'll strongly warn against a false faith that doesn't transform us from our heart to our head and our thinking to our eyes and what we see to our ears and what we hear to our hands and to our feet and what we do. They all have the same goal. Jesus and James and John and Peter and Paul all have the same goal, and that's to, that every Christian should grow up to be a mature man. And we have that in, in James. What's his goal for his writing? And we see it in James 1.4. It says this, uh, that each person would, would grow up to and be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the same goal, the same strong warnings against false faith, stopping short of maturity. People think that they're a Christian. They think they're a Christian because they've made some kind of commitment to, like, I believe that there's a God. I believe that there's God's Son. I believe that I need Christ. And, uh, yeah, I need to be saved, so God saved me. And because they believe those things, uh, they may deceive themselves, and their heart may be still the same as it was. They might be a professor of the faith and proclaim the faith and not actually possess that faith that's supposed to change you. If you only pro profess the faith and it's not changing you, then by definition that faith is ineffective. By definition that faith is a, a dead faith. Uh, James mentions over and over in his book, no, don't be deceived by such a false faith. Let me give you a couple of places where we see that. Uh, in James 1.16 it says, don't be led astray by false faith and false doctrine. Uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, don't be deceived, my brethren. Uh, verse 26 of chapter 1, uh, this is an empty religion if you don't have a faith that transforms you. Verses 6 through 8, we've already talked about, don't be a double-minded man. Don't be saying, I believe in Jesus and then live for yourself. In chapter 2, verse 20, it says that be careful about an empty and dead faith. And then chapter 3, the whole, most of the chapter is about our tongue. And he says that with our tongue, we praise God and we bless God and we say, you're God and I worship you and you're my God. And then we turn around to people and we curse them. And he says that such things shouldn't be that way. In Psalm 26, 1 and 2, it says this, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Test my heart and test my mind. Uh, James is going to test us to see if the faith that you and I claim to have is real faith or if it's a false faith. But all the way through Scripture, the same tests are given. Examine me. Try me. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts 
and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lamentations 3 also tells about how we're to uh, search and make sure that we're in Christ. Let us search and test our ways, and if they're not toward the Lord, let us turn again to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, and this is in the New Testament. Examine yourself and make sure that you're in the faith. Hebrews 4, let us therefore, lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Uh, this is saying this. We can be professing that we're Christians. We can be acting as if we're Christians. We can say, I believe. We can, have, we can say, I have faith. And what James is saying is like, test it to make sure it's real because if it's real, it's going to change you. If it's real, it's going to modify your living. If it's real, it's going to transform your heart. And it's going to transform it all the way down into the way you treat people, the way you live, the way you walk, what you think. It's going to transform you in all those ways. And if it's not doing that, you've got to keep examining yourself to make sure that you be in the faith. Hard words. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you're really transformed, that, that these things should be true about you. All the whole Sermon on the Mount is that way. But I want you to hear this. The works that James is calling us to do, and he's calling us to do a lot of works, the works uh, that he's calling us to do is not itself the fountain of our life. The works that James is calling us to do spring up from the fountain of our life, and that's the gospel. James knows that, though. Well, you, you can't read James uh, without understanding that he, that, he, that he says the fountain of our life is not in the works. The fountain of our life is in the gospel, the word implanted in our heart. And from that flows and must flow all these works. Or they're not, it's not a true fountain that you had. Let me, let's look at a, a couple of verses. James 1, 17 through 21. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone may, must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore put aside all filthiness and all that remains in wicked, of wickedness. In humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So. James is saying that every good gift that comes, comes down from the Father above. He never changes. We often quote that verse about all our good gifts, and we should. All the good gifts that you and I have are from his hand. But then he tells us what the best gift is, what the gift he's really talking about is, and he says it this way. He said uh, that by God's doing, he birthed you by the word that he put in your heart. The word of God is active and alive, and, and he's saying that the best gift is the gift of new life. New life in Christ, and it's because of Christ, not because of our works. And then he says this, so we should do all these activities of putting aside all the filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, because why? Because we have the Word of God implanted in us. So James says, yes, work. We, ha we need a faith that works, but the works themselves are not the fountain of our life. The works themselves come from the fountain of our life, which is the Word that God has imparted. James 2.13 very simple statement says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So everything that we're going to hear in the book of James, all the imperatives, all the commands, and there's lots of them there, they're anchored in the gospel. 
They're anchored in a soul that's been transformed by the word of God. So our profession of our faith, what we say we, we believe, should be matched by the transform, transformation of our hearts and, and our minds. James is saying, be who you are in Christ. Don't be deceived. Um, this is all about a faith that works. So James, we're going to title it a faith that works. It's a faith that works, meaning it's a faith that's going to redeem and save us. But a faith that's going to redeem and save us is also going to be a faith that transforms us to do the works that God prepared for us to, to do, to walk in them. So because James is all about doing and duty, uh, there's 54 imperatives in the book of James. That's not even counting imperatives means commands. Do this, do this, do this. So it can be kind of overburdening. It's like, man, that's a lot of to-dos. So we have to always go back to it's because the word implanted in us that we can do those things and we have the power and the source to do those things. So for James, uh, what we believe makes a complete difference in what we believe or what we do, how we live, the actions that we take, the words that we speak, the way we do our relationships honestly and lovingly, uh, both the believers and, and unbelievers. So what's the outline of James? Well, I, I read seven different commentaries about the outline. Like, which outline should I use? And uh, there, there really isn't a good outline of James. Uh, if, you get, if you find a really good outline, let me know, and I uh, might use it. But I couldn't find any. And what James does is he goes from one uh, thing, one circumstance, and he talks about it. He talks about this is how we should do, this is what you did wrong, this is how the gospel should change you. And then he immediately goes into another one, and then to another one, and then to another one. And I really think that the best way, if I wanted to tell you an outline, is simply to say, here are the big things that, Paul, that James talks about through his book. I think it's really appropriate that James writes that way. He, he writes like, very much like Proverbs, wisdom in this area of life about your tongue, wisdom in this area of your life about interacting with people who come into your, uh, your church or your gathering, wisdom about uh, the, what you think, that, that, you, that you're not carried away by every wind of doctrine, but that you, you have uh, the faith that you understand and know it. It's appropriate because James is saying everything in your life should be transformed by this faith. And then he goes and he shows you different pictures in your life all the way through, from this one to that one to that one, and how faith should be transforming you and transforming me. So there's not really uh, an outline, but if we listed the different things that, that is talked about by James, one thing is going to seem to be missing. There's not a lot of heavy doctrine. There's not a lot of heavy theology there. Now I was thinking about that. Some people don't want to go to James because it doesn't have the right theology, uh, supposedly. We, we believe that it's consistent with Paul. Some people says it has a wrong theology that we, uh, we're saved by works. It doesn't say that. We'll see that. Some people stay away from James because it doesn't have enough ologies, enough theology. And what does ology mean? By ology. Sociology. means the study of something, right? And let's say, let's uh, imagine for a moment that uh, somebody's really into biology. They study it. They uh, take their pre-med class or exam and they make it into med school. Uh, they make it through med school and they're about to operate on you. You're talking to them and you're like, they, they say, yeah, I, I used to love biology, but I don't really follow it when I do surgery. I just kind of do whatever, you know, once I get in there. I wouldn't want to go under that person's knife, right? Whoever studied the allergies, I would want them to live it out, like whatever. And uh, that's what James is saying. You know, there's, there's not a lot of 
detailed theology, heavy theology, but it really is a lot of theology and heavy theology. Why? Here's why. Because theology that's not practiced is not the theology of the Bible. Doctrine that's not put into practice is not the doctrine of Scripture. It's not the doctrine of God. And so what we see in the book of James is doctrine carried to the fullest, and that's where it's lived out in relationships and life and words spoken, things done. So James is all about a faith that works. Genuine faith, real faith, is not simply an assent or a belief in correct teaching, but it's a movement to correct living. I think that's really important. That genuine faith, real faith, is not simply an assent to correct teaching, but it's a movement of our whole life to correct living who we are. One more thing I want to kind of put out there as a, as a foundation of some of the things that James does. Uh, James gives us a starting place of the Word of God changing our hearts by God's grace alone. He also, throughout, uh, he has us look to the, not just the, the past of how God has changed our hearts, he has us to look at the future of God's promises, and from both ends, what God has done and what he's promised to do, he brings both of those things back to bear on the circumstances and situations that he talks about and how it should change us. So uh, we've talked a little bit about the word of God being implanted. Let's talk just for a moment of how, how James points us to the future grace and future promises. Two places. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says this. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. I can't wait till we get there. Uh, the brother of low circumstances is to glory in what? His high position. And then it says, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. And then chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. For you to, uh, you to be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And so what we have here is two things about the future. One thing James says is, in the future... There's going to be judgment for everything that we do and think. That should change what we do and think. But then he also says, we also have the future hope of God. We have the future hope of the, re the one who's going to come to renew all things. Uh, and we're to hope and wait for him. So he takes the future and he pulls it back to the present so that it helps us to, to get through the circumstances and situations by having the gospel transform you and transform me. So... Um, James is filled with all kinds of illustrations and metaphors about the faith. Um, I have a long list here. I just read through it and jotted them down as I went. I'm going to give you just a couple of them. If you want the whole list, you can see me afterwards. In chapter uh, 1, couple, in verse 6, he says, The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The one who doubts is like the ocean. I was uh, at Myrtle Beach last weekend right before the storm came, and man, it was a lot of waves. And it says the one who doubts the truth of God's word, they're just like one way and the other way, this direction, that direction, just like the surf of the sea. In uh, chapter 2, verse 26, it says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, if there's just a corpse and there's no spirit, you're dead, uh, so is faith without works is dead. If you have a faith, a belief that doesn't change you, it's dead faith. It's not the faith of the scriptures. And then we have uh, chapter 3. Uh, he, he uses a lot of metaphors when he gets to the tongue. He says that um, it, 
If we put the bits into a horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body. So it gives us this illustration that once we put a bit in a mouth and we direct the mouth, it, it directs our entire body. So what we say, our tongue kind of directs what we think, what we do, our entire bodies. It's also our tongue is like the rudder of a ship. The rudder of a ship is really, really small compared to the ship. And, and yet, when that rudder turns, the whole ship turns. Our tongue can do the same thing. So we have all these great metaphors uh, and illustrations about uh, the genuine faith and what it does. Chapter 3, verse 12, it says, A fig tree, my brothers, can't, can't produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh water. And what, what James is saying is like, well, if you're a Christian, you should be producing the fruit of Christianity, the fruit of a real faith. Uh, and if you're not, you need to examine yourself. Am I really in the faith or, or am I not? So my, uh, what I want to urge you guys and me toward is as we're studying this message from God through the half-brother of Jesus, James, um, may these next months, may we test the reality of our faith, the quality of our faith. May we look and, and see what James writes and say that, that, that our faith should transform our tongue and our actions and our duties. May, may, we, may we examine our, our hearts and our faith and see if we are in the faith, if we have real faith. If we test and if we've tested it and examined it and, and we see we're not in the faith, my prayer that is that this book may draw you into the true faith, real faith to the gospel. If your faith is found wanting or false, may the Lord leads you in the way that's everlasting. Now, many hear uh, the truth of, jo of James 1, 18, 17 through 21 is true. The Word of God has already birthed you. It's already given you a new heart. It's already given you a, a new life. And my prayer for you is that the passion of James saying that the, the gospel should transform all of us into a man mature man so that we're perfect and lacking in nothing, may, may James's writings awaken true faith in us and move us from complacency uh, to live not for us but for him. Now recall where we started. We started with James not believing. We started with James hearing and seeing other people who say I believe but they weren't affected very much by it. And then James was uh, gripped by the gospel and he saw that the only appropriate response was to be all in. It's the only appropriate response that Jesus is Lord. And may the gospel so grip you and me that we would be moved to that goal of being perfect and complete. Not that our works save us, um, but our works, may, may our works be appropriate responses to such a glorious word being implanted in you and in me. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That's the word of truth. We thank you that it's the word of truth that's living and active and that gives us life in Christ and, and justifies us. It's not our works. But we, Father, we thank you that the word working in our heart is such that it's so glorious, so transforming, that it can't help but to change us. And so, Father, because of that truth, we can examine ourselves by our works to see if we're in the faith, to see if the, the word has really been implanted into our hearts. And so, Father, today I pray that if there's any here that the Word of God has not done its work of saving and redeeming and being implanted and giving new life, I pray that, that it would do that today. That may, if not today, maybe over the series of looking into the book of James. Father, I pray for all the, that are here that the Word of God has done that action and has transformed our heart and given us a new life. Lord, I pray that our faith, real faith, would be awakened in our soul 
that we wouldn't be complacent in the way we live. And Father, that we would uh, agree with James and Jesus and Paul and John and Peter and C.S. Lewis, that, Father, if you're Lord, it changes everything. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.